0: Okay, so, greetings everybody. I humbly am presenter tonight on a big, complicated subject. So, um, my goal, obviously, in what's, if we were going to cover the history and et cetera of anti-Semitism, it would be at least a semester course, right, with lots of reading. So, that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to try to do is frame the subject and give you a my understanding of the context that leads to anti-Semitism as well as other oppressive systems in the world. And then we'll also uh, think about ways to combat it. What can we do? Uh, So my first comment is that this is an emotional subject. That should go without saying, but uh, to pretend to be dispassionate or objective or blah, 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 like, waste of time. (coughs) Anti-Semitism, any outbreak of anti-Semitism brings up for any semi-conscious Jew the possibility of annihilation, right? So that's, like, intense, (laughs) right? I mean, so so it's not like, here, I'm going to give you my academic discourse on anti-Semitism when there's, like, roiling emotion about this for each one of us in our own way. So it's always good for me to acknowledge that elephant in the room so that we can say, yes, of course it is. I mean, the nature of anti-Semitism is to terrify us, to terrify us Jews. That's the nature of it. And so it's a terrifying subject. And so when it rears its ugly head, we not only respond uh, because it's wrong and bad, but because it's terrifying. And so, again, one of the things we can do is be together and be kind to each other. Because one of the responses that I'm going to talk about about anti-Semitism, one of the things that happens to Jews is we start taking it out on each other. You're, too, you know, you're, a, you're a Shanda to the Jews. What will the Goyim think? All the things we say that are part of our culture are all about like keeping our heads down. And so, uh, I, I mean... So we're going to talk about that more later. Uh, so I wanted to say that. Um, a tough topic. The second thing I want to do is, as best I can, uh, look at the biggest picture <coughs> that, I can, that I can perceive, <clears throat> both historically and sort of um, uh, humanly. It seems like the nature of, hum- of, one, of the na- one of the parts of our uh, nature as human beings, our lesser nature, is to want to control and exploit other people, want to be in control, want to have power, want to hoard power, want to, make a- want to feel special, and uh, uh, have other people be less than us. This seems to be part of human nature. We have another part of human nature, our better nature, which is the part that recognizes this and tries to transcend it, overcome it, and combat it. Uh, So every human being is dealing with this. It seems to me that oppression of groups of people, categories, uh, racism against African-Americans in this country, history of racism, its primary purpose was economic, right? It, we, you know, the, 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 slave, the slave owners and the society that profit off of slave labor uh, by creating a category called blacks, Negroes, which, you know, is not historically... The, 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 the construction of race is something that is a creation of human conceptualizing. Um, to explain, when you study the history of American racism, to justify the enslavement of Africans, a theory of race was created, that they were less human than us, right? And therefore needed to be treated like children and couldn't really take care of themselves and had to be shown who was the boss and all that stuff. All that complete crap used as a justification for economic power and for control. Um, sexism, the uh, the control of women and the demeaning of women, the messages of sexism that let that 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 uh, um, say that women are less capable of, of taking care of themselves than men, that need men to just tell them what to do. You know, to me seems to be a um, a response to wanting to control the means of procreation you know to uh, basically to be in charge and then in order to enforce your in your chargeness to create definitions of the group that justify why you need to control them right that's how I see it now again everything I'm going to be saying today is a schematic right it's not it's oversimplified I know that but to, I, want to, I want to give this a context because sometimes a good schematic helps us understand a problem, a very complex problem. So the nature of anti-Semitism in its essence is to blame the Jews, to scapegoat the Jews for all the problems. It doesn't matter what they are. Remember, if Jews can simultaneously be controlling the world's banks and Be the communist vanguard all at the same time. This is completely irrational, completely illogical. But what's the advantage of having a scapegoat to a group in control?
1: It releases the pressure.
0: Yeah, that's one of the the reasons. One of the things it does. It deflects attention. If, as anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages sort of, I mean, let me back up a little. I see anti-Semitism originating, not in not in in early, in the early conflict between Judaism and Christianity, sibling traditions. When who were who uh, when the um, when when the Christian um, Christianity became the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire, and they had state control and the levers of power, they used that. Um, against the Jews, and uh, that was coming from a theological and familial dispute. But it became an economic one. Uh, you can blame the Jews for killing our Lord, right? And that just that gets you way down the road in scapegoating, right? But then you can also set up a system where people are predisposed to blame the Jews by, for example, uh, denying Jews access to any professions in, in, in Christian Europe in the Middle Ages other than tax collecting and money lending. So you set the Jews up as the visible agents of power, when in fact the Jews were only serving in all those countries uh, by the, um, what do you call it, the pleasure okay. of the ruler. Right? Uh, and the Jews, they would sign a charter with the leader. The leader would say, Yes, you get to, to collect taxes and live here at my pleasure, and then you give me most of the taxes. And if I don't like it, or I don't like you, and I, or if the people are getting too restive or whatever, you're out. Right? So, what looked like a powerful existence was an incredibly tenuous one for the Jews. Uh, so, I want to say, so the first point I want to make is that the consolidation and maintenance of power is, is in my opinion, the, uh, the, what's behind most of these systematic forms of oppression. And that the, the, the Jews played a very, very helpful role as the scapegoats that could be blamed that the people were predisposed to blame because they in Europe because they were uh, reading the Gospels all the time of John, where every Easter they would read about how the Jews said, kill Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? And the Jews killed our Lord. Mm -hmm. I don't know, some of you grew up in neighborhoods where you got that shouted at you. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was this religious underpinning to what became an incredibly convenient way to uh, um, uh, deflect attention onto the Jews as the source of our problems. In the Middle Ages, Jews were also uh, demonized. And uh, just like Africans uh, and African Americans, uh, dark, swarthy, um, sexually uh, uh, dangerous, um, it's almost as though another thing that an oppressed group serves is the opportunity for the uh, uh, oppressing Mm, society to project all of their negative qualities on and say it's, it's on them you know, everything venal, everything uh, um, uh, uh, greedy, everything grubby, everything, everything and you become a blank slate for the projections of, of the um, yes take care of yourself okay you need anything, Epi? Okay. You need anything? It- you want me to go with you? I'll be all right. Okay. Thanks, Randy. Randy could not say, I'm a retired doctor. <laughs> 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 Really? (laughs) You can imagine if you're not a rabbi, you're still a
2: rabbi, right? Right, right, right. right. Exactly. Especially if you're still living, especially
0: if you're still living in the same town. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Jewish scapegoat, from a religious standpoint, also became a convenient economic perspective. A whole uh, incredible ideology built up around that. In, Europe, in the Middle Ages. And then in the modern era, that religious and economic anti-Semitism turned into a racial anti-Semitism. We know the history of this. Uh, how in the late 19th century, the Jews started being viewed as a race more than a, rel- more than a religious group. And racial theory that developed in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, that, uh, that led to the Aryan, the Aryan ideology. And so that not only were you Jewish, it, it, there was a time when, you could, when your option, rather than being scapegoated and kill or killed, was to convert. Mm-hmm. That was religious anti-Semitism. By converting, you uh, solved the Jewish problem. And I just want to point out that just the phrase, the Jewish problem, is absurd.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We're not a problem. What the hell is that? And so that is another just sort of like, why would we talk? And the way that translates into Jewish communities that we debated ourselves. What's wrong with us? What do we need to do? Why aren't we doing this? You know, it's like, because that's what happens. You blame yourself and you try to figure out how to not be a problem when people are threatening to kill you. So one, so, so many converted. But in, in, uh, starting in the late 19th and, and then early 20th century, you could no longer convert because you had Jewish blood which again on the on the plain examination of it is an absurdity right just go to Israel and look around and there's no such thing as Jewish blood you see every color shape and size' there's, there's, there, we're not a race we're something but we're not a race uh, and so um, the um, but the the the, the pseudoscientific and uh, um, the, pseudo-scient- okay? yeah. the pseudo-scientific and um, uh, uh, racial treatment of Jews, as we know, meant that even if you converted, you were still Jewish. And so it became an inescapable conclusion of the, Ar- of, of, uh, the Aryan ideology, of Hitlerism, that of the Nazis, that we couldn't, we were Jewish, and we had to be eradicated. We know that. Um, I think what I want to get to is that, in my opinion, and we also know that anti-Semitic ideology wasn't just in Germany. Right? In America in the 1930s, there's a reason why the gates weren't opened to Jewish refugees. There were American science, pseudoscientists and German pseudoscientists sharing all of this literature and pseudo research about, about um, uh, what's it called? Epi, um, eugenics. eugenics. About the theory of about the science of race. Charles Lindbergh was an openly anti Semitic pres, you know, potential presidential candidate. Henry Ford ran the biggest car company in the, in the country. These guys were rabid anti-Semites. And any of you who are old enough, my stepfather certainly remembers what it was like growing up when anti-Semitism was just intense in this country. So, I mean, there are reasons why it took so long to persuade Roosevelt to, uh, to bomb the tracks. You know, it's, like, it's all... Anti-Semitism, did, Anti-Semitism was systemic in the European Christian world. Uh, It doesn't extend in the same way to the Muslim world until after the creation of Israel. And I want to talk about that. Uh, Islamic countries treated their Jews as second class citizens, but not because of an ideology of scapegoating them or uh, demeaning them. Does that make sense? that doesn't mean it was a golden era to be a Jew in Morocco. It means that they weren't faced with a systematic ideology of scapegoating That uh, that's important to understand. So anti-Semitism is like in the DNA of the Euro- of European and then Northern, uh, society, as it, and as it extends to the Christ- Christendom all over the world, including the United States. In the United States, we know we've been so beautiful so fortunately protected by the ideology and founding principles of this country. Right? The idea of not establishing a religion, of the separation of church and state, and of the freedom of worship, because it's part of the legal and ethical DNA of this country, has given us such a safer existence than anywhere else in the world, in in as far as I can tell, in in the last 2,000 years. I mean, I am so grateful that my grandparents left Poland um, and that I could grow up here and have have the opportunity even to think about this stuff without worrying for my life. The point I want to make is that I think that after World War II and the horror and revulsion of recognizing what the Nazis had done and almost attempted to, uh, done and attempted to do. And the creation of the United Nations created a temporary sympathy for the Jews and made it politically and socially unacceptable to be a rabid anti-Semite in public. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think there was a period of moral revulsion and a sense of penance, or whatever that is that we humans share, that gave us a temporary reprieve against the worst elements of anti-Semitism. And I think it was that that, that allowed the UN vote to take place that created the state of Israel, some sense of, oh, let them have a country, you know? Um, and I think that um, it created a period in this country and in many countries of um, where anti-Semitism had to be pushed, was pushed to the margins. Because it didn't go away. It never goes away. Racism doesn't go away, sexism doesn't go away. I mean, I want to talk more about that. Uh, um, but um, and anti-Semitism doesn't go away. What happens in my theory when forms of extroverted, open, overt oppression becomes socially unacceptable is that they find other means to assert themselves. So what do I mean? Some of us have read a book by um, Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. This is an unbelievably compelling, like, irresistible argument explaining how as the civil rights movement took root and legislation was, was passed in the United States that made it illegal to openly discriminate against African Americans, new, new covert ways of discrimination were maintained and new dog whistles and code words were established. And, uh, you know, when you read about this, you hear about things like, um, Uh, Words like Nixon, who really really was the one who nailed this and got it going, talking about law and order, Mm -hmm. the silent majority, Mm -hmm. the war on drugs, the criminal element, um, all of these became code words basically for black men. And uh, racism was forced into a bit of retreat, thank God but still was looking for ways to assert itself and does to this day. I find that sexism, it's similar. I mean, where it used to be in, you know, in the 1950s, women couldn't, own, couldn't sign a deed on a piece of property. Women had to have their husbands go with them to court. Women couldn't initiate a divorce. Women, it's like... Couldn't get a credit card. It's like sexism was societally and legally uh, accepted and in place. Well, we've we never got the Equal Rights Amendment passed, but managed to get more and more legal protections for women. So it has to reassert itself another way. Uh, and I think Hillary Clinton's loss, in my opinion, was a, an assertion of of male dominance in the person of the biggest bully we've ever seen in the White House, uh, slapping down an uppity woman. Uh, so you know. And you can't call it sexism and feminism got turned into a dirty word and all that stuff. But so what happened with the Jews? Zionism. Slowly over the last I'd say forty years, say since the yeah, since the Six Day War, um, Zionism has become the convenient substitute word. Anti-Zionism for anti-Semitism. Um, how's this work? Well, you can't say Jews are the devil anymore. It's like you're gonna you are going you can not talk about Hitler was right. You can't do that unless you're way out on the fringes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Thank God. But the force of anti-Semitism, which one which is both <coughs> irrational and extremely effective, just like these other forms of oppression, which want to keep one class of people in a certain position. And I, I'm, I'm proposing to you that the position that Jews occupy primarily is that of scapegoat, the one that gets blamed for the world's problems. Um, something that... How did, how did that happen? But that's what it is. Um, so what happened, to, in my opinion, was that In the years after the creation of the state, after 1948, there was a a general sense of international sympathy for the Jews. I mean, look, they've just gotten nearly wiped out and they've got their asses kicked. And now look at them, they're building a country. And it's uh, um, when the Jews became winners, things started to go downhill because. Now, I want to talk about anti-Semitism on the right and on the left. In my opinion, far right-wing ideologies and far left-wing ideologies have something awful in common, which is they they want to divide the world into a binary system of white and black, us and them, victim and oppressor. That's what you're on the left, victim and oppressor, right? On the right, it comes right out of uh, white supremacy. Uh, uh, right, it's superior races and inferior races. Uh, um, and so the reason I'm neither a, a right-winger or a far-left-winger, I, I, I'm somewhere center-left, I guess you'd call me, uh, but I can't abide by it because for me the world is a world of complication and nuance. And the, those hard ideologies are desperate to turn the world into an us-versus-them scenario so that you can be on the side of right. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, very enamored of leftist ideology, right? Because it's righteous. You know. And then I know many people who were avid leftists, who when they were disillusioned by the fact that uh, the left was actually, uh, um, unfortunately, despite their high ideals, incredibly rigid, uh, had, like, their awakening and became neocons. It's like, for me, that's as bad as staying... Uh, do you understand? It's like, it's, like being on a, on like, it's like being on a boomerang, a, a, a giant yo-yo or something. It's like, so you're going to go to the other side? For me, I hopefully have moved more towards nuance, more towards complexity, more towards humility. In trying to understand how the world works. So, when we talked, so I was looking up articles as we were preparing for this, as I was preparing for this. I, wrote, I just Googled anti Semitism on the right and the left. And many articles came up saying, anti Semitism isn't really on the right, it's on the left. And other articles that said, anti Semitism isn't really on the left, it's on the right. You know, and it's like, there we go. And then there were some really good articles about anti Semitism on the right. And on the left, um, on the right, we have the classic anti-Semitic tropes: Jews control the banks; Jews are a secret cabal running the world; Jews uh, uh, are uh, the spawn of the devil; Jews killed Jesus; Jews, Jews, Jews. no—that sort of stuff we're familiar with. The anti-Semitism on the left is trickier because Um, because they don't say that out loud and it's instead but but because of the DNA of this being a scapegoating here's what I see happening if you need to have a victim and oppressor to have the world be organized in the way your ideology says it needs to be organized then when the Jews were victims we're on their side poor Jews right as soon as the Jews assert their power, which is the whole purpose of Zionism, so that we don't have to be the victim anymore, um, we, are, we must be the other, the oppressor. And do you remember um, uh, Yasser Arafat showing up in the UN in the mid-70s and the UN passed a resolution that said Zionism is racism? Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, we don't have anything against Jews. We just think that Zionism is a problem. And so the dog whistle is Zionism. Uh, To the degree that, and we'll talk about this some more, because this is, I mean, the antisemitism on the right. I I feel like we know how to deal with that. Uh, I find this to be much more uh, challenging. Not that it's easy to deal with it, but it's like, get in their face. Stop them. Shout them down. You know, get our allies on board. Let's do this. but on the left, it really goes back to the history of communism and the workers' movement. Um, but that's, a, whole, that's, a, that's a, a lecture I can't give. I'm not, I'm not equipped enough to do it. Um, on the left, the way I see what happened is that some critics, some anti-Semites, who found that they could get traction criticizing Israel and Zionism. Now, you know you're dealing with anti-Semitism when Zionism and Israel are singled out as the scapegoat for the world's problems. You know you're dealing with someone who's critical of Israel if they have a nuance understanding of the complexity of the situation, right? That's a conversation. So all anti-Israel talk is not all anti-Semitism. But most of it is, in my opinion. Um, Because when you look at the absurdity of claiming that Israel, among all the nation states of the world, is uniquely sinful. It just, it's like mind boggling, right? There's no logic, there's no real, realism in this. The United States is built on the eradication of the Native American tribes, and the economy was built on the backs of slave labor. Okay, so that, and America has many amazing positive qualities too. Um, Shall we go down the list? I was talking about what we consider to be the best of nations. Which nation doesn't have unbelievable blood on its hands? Because that's the human situation. right? Before there were nations, there were tribes and kingdoms. It's like we're primates and we're still at it, trying to beat each other up for resources. It's like, let's just face it. And we're also human beings that have the capacity to imagine a United Nations or an International Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, we're both. right? But when Israel is singled out as essentially the demonic problem and that if only Israel would, (laughs) then just put Jews in there. If only the Jews, and there's a Jewish problem. Now there's a Zionist problem. We Jews have as much right as anyone else to national self-determination in our own homeland. Period. Now, am I, do, do I understand the complexity of the situation? I'm, I'm a lefty. I have my critique of the Israeli government and the choices they've made. I'm also humbled as I get older, because I don't live there, and I'm not uh, watching the secret intelligence come in. Right. So I'm not here to convince you of the right thing Israel should do, I have my opinions, of course. I love my opinions.
3: Um,
0: but what I want to, what I'm here to say is that when Israel is single, when Zionism or Israel is singled out as the the epitome, the nadir, the source of the problems that the world is facing, we're dealing with anti-Semitism. And the left thrives on this. Because the left needs a victim and needs an oppressor. And those poor Palestinians, those miskinim, who have really gotten a bum deal, let me tell you, in terms of, but it's the, the, um, the, as you all probably know, all their Muslim and Arab neighbors have made it a point of not integrating the Palestinians into their own society, such that 70 years after the War of Independence, they still call themselves refugees right it's a it's a way to blame israel and to create a narrative of the jews oppressing the poor palestinians now i'm going to say again you'd have to have your head in the sand not to see the 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 the, the um the the sort of culturally and morally corrosive qualities of Israel's occupation of the Palestinians in the West Bank. I mean, it's a complete mess. But we're not here to solve that problem. That's not the topic tonight. Nor do I know how to solve the problem. Uh, The topic tonight is scapegoating Zionism without using using the code word, as a code word for anti-Semitism. You see this happening all over Europe, certainly. It's almost as though... In my, in my opinion, that the statute of limitations on remorse and guilt and, you know, one, two generations, and then this stuff can crawl out from under a rock again and start to be talked about by politicians who get 30% of the vote, you know, who uh, the head of the Labour Party in England, the, you know, all, it's like, it's, it's so, the, the demonization of Israel in Europe is so intense, uh, um, it's hard to know who your allies are. Here in the United States, as you're familiar with, college campuses are the, uh, I mean, I don't know what you were doing as a college kid, but I wanted to be on the right side. You know, I was looking for where I should be. You know, I was, comp- I was not sophisticated. I was, comp- I was malleable. Um, I was looking for an ideology that would explain the world, and so on college campuses, with their um, with their left wing um, uh, inclinations, right. That's what academia is. Most of which I agree with, but when it tips over the line from nuance into black and white. You know you're in big trouble. And on college campuses all over, there are uh, uh, students aligning themselves with the Palestinian cause. Of course I have no objection with them aligning themselves with the Palestinian cause. I I don't want those poor Palestinians to have... I want them to have good lives. You know, it's like that's not what it's about because I'm not doing the either-or thing. But they're doing the either-or thing. And so at Vassar... Where uh, one of our dear members is a professor, um, she led a trip two years ago, three years ago? Three years ago. She and another Jewish faculty member led a trip to Israel. That was a trip about geology and history. And they were going up and down the Jordan Rift Valley. In other words, it had nothing to do with politics, it was going to both Palestinian and Israeli territories. It was like, and on campus, they got boycotted. They got, uh, there they they were gauntlets they had to walk to to get to their classrooms. They were, it was unbelievable. You've read these stories about campuses. all. Oh, I just happened to be one degree removed from that one, so I, I heard all about it. Um, Jewish students are in a real fix on most college campuses right now because if they espouse a thoughtful, moderate view they do not have a home on campus. It's very, very difficult for them to find a place where they can say, "I support Israel" and not be shouted down. The problem is, if they're—I'm talking about that centrist position where where you'd say, "Yeah, I care about Israel and I care about the Palestinians too." You know, I don't care about them as much as I care about Israel, but I'm not writing them off. You know, that's a that's like perfectly reasonable position, uh, they're in in big trouble on most college campuses. They can't find a place for themselves. Uh, There are right-wing pro-Israel groups on college campuses, but they're just as binary as left-wing groups. So what you have then is an incredible amount of heat and smoke and no light, right? And you know that we thrive on drama. Human beings love drama. And uh, love a good, I'm right, you're wrong, standoff. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that's a big problem on college campuses today. And so what happened to anti-Semitism was that it got repackaged and exported to the, to the world. So what had been the property of Christian Europe Becomes in an age of nation states, the property of everyone, as anti-Zionism, and so the Jews, the Israel in the UN, is not permitted to join its regional um, group of nations. It's not allowed to join. So Israel is scapegoated and isolated in the UN. When we speak about scapegoating. I don't have the figures in front of me, but of the X number of hundred of Security Council resolutions and General Assembly resolutions passed over the last 70 years, something like half of them are about Israel. Did you follow me? hundred and ninety-two. How many states are in, how many nations are in the UN now?
1: 195, I believe. Right.
0: And half of them are about this tiny little country in the Middle East, which has problems just like everybody else. Um, it's so obvious that Israel has been isolated and scapegoated in the UN in the classic fashion of, in the classic modality of anti-Semitism repackaged as anti-Zionism. The very idea that a resolution could be passed condemning Zionism as racism back in the was it the 70s or the 80s? I think it was the 70s. Um, Zionism as racism. When Zionism is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people, uh, is horrifying, but it happened, and only got rescinded uh, under American pressure, what, under George H.W. Bush, I think, Um, 10 years later, something like that. So... What was a religious-based, Christian-based oppression of Jews becomes an internationally-based scapegoating, singling out an oppression of Israel. And um, it puts us in a very, very tough position. Now, there's one more element that I want to talk about about anti-Semitism today. Oh, of course. So we're dealing with that left-wing anti-Semitism, we're also dealing with the antisemitism that in my opinion, Donald Trump's pronouncements uh, allow to happen, which is the emerging from under their rocks on the far right. right? If you have a leader who gives you the silent approval to, for hate speech, mm-hmm. then you just have to read in the Jewish press about Jewish congressional candidates in the last election, Jewish state assembly candidates in the last election, who were constantly being barraged with horrific anti-Semitic emails and Facebook posts. Frightening. When has this happened before? So I see both the, the burgeoning of anti-Zionism on the left, because they won't say they're anti-Semitic, and the reappearance of anti-Semitism on the right, uh, uh, which doesn't apologize for itself at all. That's the main difference between the right and the left, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, Uh, you just, yeah, what you see is what you get over there. Um, And uh, so we are in a moment, in my opinion, of expanding and increasing overt anti-Semitism in the world. Now, there's another area that doesn't get talked about that much, that I talk about a lot and have in my entire revenue here, which is the internalized effects of anti-Semitism on Jews and Jewish communities. You can't be... There's no way to survive near annihilation and then to find yourself having to continue to justify your existence. Your existence justified your existence um, without it having an effect on your psyche, on your emotions, on your heart, on how you feel about your own Jewish identity, on how a Jewish community behaves with each other. This is called internalized antisemitism. A, a, a simple way of the, how it works, say, in the African-American community is that light-skinned African-Americans have always been the top of the heap in that community. You know what I mean? You familiar with that phenomenon? It's like, And all they want to do is be able to pass. Right? Now, black power movement was a whole answer to that. Uh, but still, the struggle in the black community to say that black is beautiful is so intense. Uh, the struggle to feel like you, I mean, I don't need to talk about that more right now. Uh, um, in the Jewish community, in my experience, let's talk about fight or flight. It's simple, but it's, it's, it's very descriptive. In the face of threats to our existence, uh, Basically, there's two responses. One is to try to disappear, and the other is to put up your dukes. I mean adrenaline, right? And I think that one of the things I see in the Jewish world is Jews who are got their dukes up all the time, that means that the whole world is against us. If that's your position, the whole world isn't against us. We have allies. We have people on our side. We have people who would, who would risk their lives for us. We know that from history. The whole world isn't against us. But if you're in fight or flight mode, the whole world's against you. And you have Jewish communities and Jewish political organizations and who are just have their dukes up, right? what does that do inside a Jewish community when that is the default mode? Well, it makes for a great sense of solidarity amongst the community, but it also makes for a rigidity and a kind of a lack of, um, well, I'll just use the word rigidity, um, because uh, once again, you're living in a binary world. What happens when Jews, without even being aware of it, say, well, I'm not really sure I like being Jewish. You know, it's like, and I don't know if Judaism is for me. Now, on one hand, just like with that rigid position, there's things we need to defend ourselves against. We have to identify our enemies. Or we're going to, you know, but if that is your only response, then you're stupid. It's, you get stupid if you only have one response. Same on the other side. If there's a reasons besides internalized anti Semitism that someone might drift away from the Jewish community, right? Assimilation is a big force. It doesn't just affect Jews, it affects all ethnic groups. Americanizing is a beautiful dream of this country, and we wholeheartedly embraced it. So it's not that if you're not proud and out as a Jew, there's something wrong with you. It's that if you find yourself embarrassed about your Jewishness why 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 do you feel like you don't want to be too Jewish and this is the key phrase for me where what the hell is too Jewish think about it for a minute just think about it if it's too Jewish has to be a response to if you're too out as a Jew you're in danger right too Jewish it's ridiculous. Be as Jewish as you want to be or as not Jewish as you want to be. The other thing that happens in Jewish communities is that we criticize each other mercilessly for not doing it right. Well, why would you be that critical? Um, what's at stake? The only reason one might be that critical is if it felt like life or death on some level of, of, of your experience. If you don't do this, we won't survive. And then you hear the Holocaust stories about people hiding in ditches under trees covered by uh, for 18 months, and if the baby cried, they had to smother her. Right? And so all of this is roiling around either consciously or subconsciously in Jews. Again, there are many factors that would cause someone to say, I don't really want to be part of the Jewish project anymore, right? Many possible reasons. But it's not a level playing field. Somebody wanted to kill us all and almost succeeded. And since then, we watch ourselves continuing to have to justify our existence to people. Who has to justify their existence? We exist. What other ethnic groups have to justify their existence? Do you know any? who put all that effort into writing books about why be Jewish and you know Jews contribution to civilization and all that stuff it's all this intense compensation for people telling us we don't deserve to exist now that pressure has made us great it's not just all negative right our vitality you know when i go to israel i take people to israel and i say this is what you tell jews what happens when you tell jews to build a country It's like you go there and 70 years there's like skyscrapers up to the sky and highways and roads and railroads and everything's under construction. It's like Jews are motivated. (laughs) I think some of the motivation comes from wanting to be safe, from fear. But that's not bad, right? Uh, I think there's some great qualities that come out of this. However, if you find that that's your only repertoire, then... You're not a full human being. Right? When do you get to relax? Or if you find yourself snickering at other Jews who are too Jewish or not Jewish enough, what's going on? And it's something to think about. If we weren't insecure about our existence, we wouldn't it wouldn't matter to us how how, how Moshe is behaving or how this person is behaving. It's like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the source of like intense um, concern and judgment and anger and criticism. So in any conversation I have about anti-Semitism in the world, I feel like we're at fault if we also don't look within and say, and how has this all affected me? So... couple more comments and then then I'll be ready to hear what you have to say and I really appreciate you listening to me all this time. So in the what to do category, on the internal front, I want to propose that what to do is what we've been doing at the Woodstock Jewish Congregation for 30 years. You may not know this, I've talked about it with some of you, but I consciously promised myself never to harangue any group in the congregation, for not showing up to synagogue. Never to make people feel like, from my words, that they weren't a good Jew. Uh, never to, because I feel like one of, the, one of the things we need to heal from this is to make a community where we can be kind to each other. I mean really kind. That doesn't mean not having nice, good arguments or anything. It means not treating people in a way that makes them feel like they don't belong. Because we're all very tenuously hanging on on some level. Like, is this going to be safe? Is it safe here? Is it safe here? You know, I've heard that a lot. Safe? There's something off about that. It must have to do with some fear of getting killed. Do you have to go, Tom? No. Oh, you're just getting yours. Okay, great. No, this is
3: for him.
0: Oh, for Epi. Oh, thank you. He's an Eagle Scout. For real. Great. So, one of the solutions for me is to create a Jewish community where people feel safe to be themselves and to express themselves. A place where we raise our level of internal awareness to notice, as we have talked about in the past, if somebody says something that you think is wrong and makes you want to kill them, (laughs) to look at your reaction. Why am I reacting so strongly? There's no danger here. We are well conditioned to to react when we feel our safety is at risk as Jewish people. But here in the Jewish community, one of the ways we can heal is by becoming more aware of our own reactions to each other so that we don't dump on each other here. That creates a a, um, gracious upward spiral Of openness and trust. There are many Jewish communities that are warm when you, you know, but you have to work your way into them because they don't trust you when you show up. I understand that. But that warmth, I feel like, is part of the antidote for what ails us. That we, never checking our brains at the door, we're smart people. Make a point, knowing that, as an oppressed group, we have a tendency to want to close ranks, to actively reach out. Uh, And I feel like that's a big part of what we've been working on here at the congregation all these years, that makes people feel like, I've never been in a synagogue where I felt like I belonged before. What's that about? For me, it's about this extending beyond our comfort zone and our desire to just close ranks, which I totally understand. The other thing we can do, another thing we can do, is recognize our allies. So um, Reverend Susan Auchincloss is here tonight. Uh, This is Susan. This is Susan. Susan is a retired Episcopalian priest who I've gotten to know very well. I'm so grateful to know. There are many people in the world who who are not Jewish, who understand the nature of anti-Semitism and are doing everything in their power to combat it. Susan in her church has been working on an initiative called Faith Not Fault. Isn't that what it's called? Where um, she was looking for a problem that she could tackle. Do you mind if I just...
4: That's not quite right.
0: Good, I'm wrong. Will you talk about it? I could. Would you please? I um, Yeah, you need to stand up so people can... No, what, Anne?
5: I really wanted to ask a question that's been...
0: Oh. I just... too. No, no, save it, please. Okay. We have time.
4: Um, when I was a, 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 had my own conversation before I retired, I read a book called Constantine's Sword, which is a thick book detailing a horrendous history of Christian persecution of Jews. And I, well, I didn't have time being full time in my position, but when I retired, I wanted to start taking initiatives to try to make the church aware. You know, the, the past is the past. Well, okay, it's not the past. We're still listening to. Passages from our Bible on Sunday mornings,
3: mm-hmm.
4: which denigrate Jews, well, Jews and Judaism, and I, my goal was to raise consciousness among Christians that this is not neutral; it is d- defamatory and it, d- and it's d- destructive. Thank you. Jews. Thank you. And Susan's
0: having success in uh, her Episcopal Church. No. No. In
4: across, across
0: denominations. Oh, see, tell me more. Tell us a little more. What what the impact has been so far? Do you
4: mind? No, um, well, it's true.
0: Interfaith. No, across Christian denominations.
4: Christian. Okay. Thank you. It, it, um, it's true. I've been most active in the Episcopal Church, but the main initiative that I actually did get started is a retranslation of of those portions of the Bible that are read <coughs> in most Christ, well many Christian churches on Sunday. So it's not a whole translation, but it's a translation that will affect the people who only hear the Bible when they go to church on Sunday, which is most Christians. So uh, that's we have a Lutheran, we have an Episcopalian, and we have a Jew, all very uh, highly regarded scholars in the field of translation who are doing this work. And it will be available soon, well, it's starting to be available soon across all denominations. And that will be amazing.
0: And you started it, thank wow. you. Um, so, my point, and I'm so grateful that Susan came tonight, is that one of our jobs in combating anti Semitism is not to paint the world with one brush is to use our discerning intelligence to seek out and make common cause with our non-Jewish allies. Because we can't make anti-Semitism go away. But we're also not, and the message of anti-Semitism is that it's us against the world. And so, if we don't, But we can't buy that message. We have to use our discerning intelligence to be able to recognize that we have allies. And they don't have to be allies, um, and and I mean allies who are concerned with our well-being. And this gets into a tricky area because there are some Christian denominations who are allies of Jews in Israel because we are playing a role in their cosmic drama of the coming end time. And we need to be we need to study this and decide whether we should be. Uh, uh, whether these uh, this is a convenient alliance for us, a helpful one, or whether uh, it's not, and that's a debate within the Jewish community. But there are also others who simply, many others, who simply are are find anti-Semitism abhorrent and understand it, just like African American people have many genuine white allies in this country. Yep. Right? We're not the smartest. I'm always having to learn about racism. I'm always making mistakes. I'm always having assumptions of mine, you know, busted open by my African American friends, but they know I'm in there. They know I'm in there, and that'll go. And, and, and the same is true of Jews. I really need to point that out to us now. Anne, what did you want to say?
5: Well, I've been really wrestling with something lately because um, my family's coming from England, and one of the things, and I don't know whether I'm crazy. <clears or throat> Or I'm overreacting or I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, but I have been plotting in my head a package that I can give both my nephews with instructions with a copy of their grandparents' ketubah mm-hmm. with information that I'm getting from the you know from the Israeli government with information on so that they'll have this little packet and how many and how many how many copies to give them of the ketubah and where they should keep them and how to find my brother's birth certificate and get a copy of that so that God forbid
0: they should have to go to Israel
5: exactly and you know, I don't think they've ever given a single thought to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here with X number of months and a window of X number of weeks to pull this off. Oh! And, am I crazy? No,
0: you're not crazy. Or
5: am I overreaching? Or am I being Le- ridiculous? I, I don't know what to do. Do I? Uh, don't I?
0: Oh, This is the
5: only place I can ask that question. Yeah.
0: So, Anne, let me respond not with a yes or no. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, you're not crazy. Seems prudent uh, to have that in place. The part is the energy behind it, mm-hmm. right? If you've set a deadline, you could mail this to them afterwards if you don't get it together. Right. But the co- time to
5: have the conversation. This is my probably the only chance I'll have for many many years to be with them together and talk in person. To them, in person and talk so, to them together. Okay. Same time.
0: So you could. So so what I'm responding to and this is where we have to learn about our own self, is the urgency mm-hmm. is founded in fear.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The idea is perfectly reasonable, in my opinion. I mean, anyone paying attention to history you know, should know that it's... A, you know. And let's all thank God for the state of Israel. I mean, before 1948, we had no place to go. And now we have a country that we built... So that if anyone wanted to kill us, they'd have to, we'd have, they'd have to get through us first. Right? I think that's smart. I, you know, uh, uh so re- that, that underlies that's under that that for me is baseline. All the political arguments come after that, if you understand what I'm what I'm saying, everybody, um about how we do it and how we run our country. And that but the fact that we're there, I think, I think uh, the people who founded Israel just we're doing the right thing. So, the question is and this again uh, is where the subtlety of this comes in is your ur- sense of urgency and panic.
5: Only because of, you know this only started with the Trump administration.
0: Well, the Trump administration has triggered panic, urgency, post traumatic stress, physical symptoms, depression amongst many people. Because fear and is being triggered and so we have a real challenge. We we have. Oh, I I know people whose sleep is still disrupted. I know um, we face a real. I know people who get who get a physical uh, PTSD reaction every time they see him on the screen, um, uh, because we have we have a a predator and a bully running our country right now. Um, regardless of anything else, it's clear that those are some of his qualities. So. Um, uh, my, my point is that we have, to, we have to then be able to sift through our feelings and reactions. Otherwise, we're, living a, uh, we're making choices and decisions based on panic. And that is never, it's always going to bite us in the butt. Somehow or other. In your case, it might make your nephews recoil from you. Right? Mm-hmm.
3: Sure. And so
0: your goal will be undercut by your fear. So we have this giant challenge to identify our fears, but not be acting on them. Right. Not ignoring them, our fear is giving us good information. But if they become the foundation of our action and our uh, then then we're in trouble. So I I I so the answer is, is not yes or no. The answer is how and why. Right? And uh, so So, and it becomes, the beautiful thing about these problems, they're beautiful problems, because the more we grapple with them, the more we get to know ourselves, and the less reactive we are in our lives. And personally, I have no interest in walking around as a reactive machine. I don't want to be a reactor, I want to be an actor in my life. And I think one of the impacts of, of internalized anti-Semitism is it makes us reactive, and then it, that makes us a lot stupider and a lot unhappier, right? So, so to be able to identify fear, explore it, determine what's behind it, and then choose an action uh, that's what you're faced with, that's what we're all faced with. And you're giving a perfect example. You have Jewish nephews in England who aren't particularly... Yeah, they're half Jewish. They're not particularly Jewish identified, and they're in England.
5: They're identified, but but they don't. I don't know that they see the. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they perceive Mm -hmm. that part of them as being.
0: Yeah, so that was a good idea. You could ask them. Mm -hmm. So you could sit down and have the first conversation and say, "I'm older than you. I've seen a lot. I'm perceiving this. What's your perception? What's it like in England?" right? What's it like? Do you, ever, do you ever catch any crap for being Jewish? What's it like if you spoke up about Israel? What happens then? And talk to them. Uh, that would be... And then say, can I talk to you on Skype like every month? I just want to keep up with you. And these, these conversations are important to me. I'm so glad you're here so we could reconnect to understand. And you're strategizing for having a relationship upon which you could tell them harder stuff later. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But if you treat this like your only chance and you shove the envelope into their arms, it's like... Uh, it doesn't sound like a winning strategy.
5: No. I mean, they know that I'm also, you know, trying to get them to take stuff of my father. Oh ah, that's
0: another beautiful conversation. It's their grandfather, right? Yeah. And you don't have children of your own. Right. That's... That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So you have so much beautiful stuff to share with them, but the panic that we're many of us are experiencing right now, and that's why we're having this conversation. I I want to counsel us to keep keep calm and uh, <laughs> and, and fight anti-Semitism. You know, uh, does that help a little?
5: Um, yeah. Well, some, it does. <laughs> Start there. Yeah, so I'll start, with, start
0: there. with that. Start there. Yes, Bobby.
2: So um, I completely agree with you about fellow.
0: And by the way, feel free to take issue with me now that I've got to blab for now. Yeah. About the lack of nuance really being a problem, and,
2: it, and, and that, that people get their news from either this station or that station that just um, reinforces their own views, and people are not, and, and with the internet. The way news and fake news is going out there it just is a breeding ground for for, for hate groups yeah. and and for false news, and um, just today in my office I'm a psychotherapist. There's I was work, seeing a couple, and the husband's business he has um, business with some hasidic, some Hasidim, and so the wife made a comment. She's not Jewish. She said. Um, you know, and he has to. You know, his, he has to work with these Jews who are always trying to get the lowest price, and oh. Oh. they just did right. all this. It's still all and, out there. And, it's, all you know, <clears> throat> and, throat> it's everywhere. Uh, you know, this, and and actually, and and so I had to stop them there and say, well, yeah, there are Jews like any group. There are going to be some who are very very honest and ethical and will always do the right thing and there will be some who will <laughs> who will cheat, you know, like like the same as any group. And the husband even said, Yes, that client is always good, but there's another one who wouldn't, you know, um, take a dime an extra dime from you and it always treats me fairly. So we had that conversation, but it I guess what I'm thinking of is how Right now, what I find myself doing is I watch TV and I see this Boris Epstein. He's the one who helped to bring Trump into power. And then you see Jared Kushner and his involvement oh, yes, with the yes, banks. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I started thinking, you know, that it's right. that among any group there will be some people and there are some people who are very visible right now in the news and it really triggers within me like the perfect breeding ground for you know the 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 russian banks and the jews who were involved and 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 to
6: feed into that whole narrative about the there are Jews um, involved with this. Yes, no, yes, that's no, right. There will be no. if you don't all know. The there are. Names no, there out. are. And like Seriously. what you were
2: saying, you know, when you think, you know, that Shonda for the game, shanda shanda yeah. For the, yeah, that this is uh, that this is what we're facing right now, and 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 the fact that there are Jews in this in high positions who are involved in in some very corrupt illegal things that are, you know. It's all, going, it's all starting to come to light now. And, and the way that the news, that people get their news, mm-hmm. is a perfect breeding ground for um, exaggeration, um, generalization. Right. And, <laughs> and all, those things, like all those right. things that can lead to that we might be entering a phase, you know, I start to feel, mm-hmm. of what's going to happen now.
0: What's going to happen now? Yes, that is our fear. Yes. Uh, as I said, the statute of limitations is up, and now uh, what's going to happen now? How will the center hold? Will, so how do you combat that? That is a good question. Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, I'm not going to claim I have the answer. I mean, these are forces beyond my control. Uh, so what do we do? What do we do? Yes?
7: The comet has always been as far as I can tell either good for the Jews or it's bad for the Jews. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed in terms of some reactions, if a Jewish person is in the news and something is positive, it's good for the Jews. If, somebody, uh, if the person is seen in a negative light, it's bad for the Jews. And this goes back to the anti semitic I think, our internal anti-Semitism that we have. And my question to you, of course, is, well, when it's bad for Jews and somebody comes and comes up and confronts us, what can we do? What can we say? And I'm thinking in terms of, I don't see it working, but I, I know that Black is Beautiful was done as a campaign to help eradicate
3: racism.
7: And I've been thinking about just the last hour, like, well, what, what would you know? Like, would it be a practical thing to do? Would it be something? I'm just trying to think of mm-hmm. what we what can be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. not what, we, what can be done in society? Because I think a lot of it too is we've always gone back to well, people are ignorant. People don't know. They learn from their parents and their, their communities that Jews are bad. Jews are this. I mean, Jews killed Christ. All the good stuff. You know. And, and I was just wondering. You're saying there
3: is no answer. Well, oh, I still, what, what
0: I, I'll still, I tell you what you I did. think. i tell you what I do think. So, first of all, I like the way Barbara described how she interrupted the mm-hmm. anti-Semitic comments that she heard with, like, reality check. Right. right. Right? That was really good. Did they even know you were Jewish? Uh, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think um, so. Yeah. My, my, my feeling is that to, to continue to marginalize anti-Semitic behavior in common. To continue to make it clear that that is not acceptable. My own feeling is that, just like with bullying, we're not going to make people change. You can't make people change. They change slowly you know, over time, but, um, but you can make it clear that our, our society does not tolerate or accept that kind of behavior or speech. So I guess that's my answer. Um, is that uh, whereas I used to have much more uh, highfalutin goals, um, the older I get, the more I see civilization as a pretty thin veneer that we manage to keep on top of our basest impulses. And um, that uh, when, it, when, it, when it gets uh, uh, rend, um, rended, when that gets torn open, uh, we just have to look around the world at conflicts and what's going on in Syria right now is the, is the worst of the worst uh, where, where the, where, where the, the uh, understanding the social compact breaks down hate speech is one of the things that starts to fray the edges of that and hate speech has to be rendered unacceptable in the public square I feel like here in the United States where we're still safe. We are. There are no Jews getting killed in the streets in the United States. We're, as Jews. That's not true. Uh, okay, I take it back. There are occasional shootings at Kansas City uh, um, uh, Jewish Community Center. There are occasional murders. In Miami. In Miami, yes. Uh, so I take back what I said. We are basically safe to be out as Jews in this country. Mm-hmm. That is the truth, everybody. We are we are okay. I can walk around with a kippah, and in most places in the country, nobody's going to kill me. Right. Okay? I and can be out as a Jew. And get, and, and get away with it. And get away with it. Right. And get away with it. Right. So Theoretically. Uh, right. So <laughs> what I'm saying is, that's not true in all places in the world. In Muslim countries, you have to hide your Jewish identity, even if you're a tourist from... Uh, The United States—you can't let people know you're Jewish. It's like I've—I've colleagues who've traveled to Egypt many times, and it took six months before they decided they could reveal their Jewishness to their close friend that they'd made. You know, it's like there's plenty of places in the world where it's not safe to be a Jew. Um, But here in this country, we have an opportunity to keep the lid on it. Us and our allies who care. They may not care primarily about Jews. Not that they don't care about Jews. They may care about civil society. They may care about the, 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 the attributes of tolerance and pluralism that m- are what make America great, right? Uh, they, they, but we have plenty of allies in the battle to keep marginalizing anti-Semitic speech and behavior. And I think that's what our task is here in this country. We can talk about other issues, too, but that's how I see it. Yes? Yes?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that's changed in the last few months is President Trump, if I'm correct, um, disavowed the Johnson rule, which is separation of church and state, and the tax exempt status for the state. That's what Johnson put in, that if you're going to preach from the pulpit, then you're going to lose your tax exempt because you're no longer acting like a church or a synagogue. So that
0: right, so he signed an executive order loosening right. the restrictions on preaching uh, uh, about political candidates from the pulpit. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's the kind of thing we want, I, I feel like it's in our interest as Jews, as a minority in this country, to oppose. Um, uh, yes. what?
1: I thought you were going to say it the other way, that you would be in favor of that. No, 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 I
0: think the separate, because of the, because of the, the, the dangerous, blood, bloody nature of Christian anti-Semitism in its uh, full blossom, I think having that, that we want, that we Jews, as a benefit from a strict separation between church and state, I know that there are Orthodox Jews who feel differently, some. Mm. Uh, but I, I'm of the, I'm personally of the firm position that, uh, that the separation of church and state has been to our benefit. It has allowed us to be fully Jewish and fully American citizens. Right.
1: Right. But but tonight you spoke of politics, not. You didn't tell us who to vote for, but you certainly expressed your opinions, and I appreciate that. Yeah
0: yeah, ex- but my my opinion, it's the the separation is when you when you uh, um, advocate for a certain candidate. Right. You're allowed to express. There are moral issues at stake here, and I feel it's religious organizations' job to speak up about moral issues. Right. Uh, no, this is about advocating for a political candidate, and trying to use your position of your pulpit to persuade people who to vote for. I do not do that. Uh, but I feel I feel like it's my responsibility, not in religious not in religious settings, but in other settings. Not when we're having Shabbat services. I don't feel that's appropriate. But in settings like this, we're dealing with complicated ethical and moral issues. Uh, Yes, David.
6: You don't mention the reaction, really, of the American Jewish children, who intermarry more than 55%, which means within 200 years, you have literally the vanishing of Jewish, except for the very religious, which is a major reaction. The parents don't tell their children but you have our family added, happened the same thing in Germany if Hitler wouldn't have come right. Jews would have vanished the same reaction is here now
0: so David I did mention that I said that there's two options, one is to flee and to not pass a, a strong Jewish identity onto your children and the other is to fight and to pass a so one of the results of fleeing is the intermarriage rate. Another result of the fleeing, another result from the intermarriage rate, is being an American. Right? So
6: what does being American mean?
0: Being for American sure? No, 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 no. Being an American, if you buy into it, means that we Jews have conflicting values. And this is not an anti-Semitism issue for me. We Jews have conflicting values. We have the value we want to pass on to our children of the importance of staying with your group, and we have the value, the American value we want to pass on to our children, that we're all equal and that this is a free society. And those are in direct conflict with each other. And it's part of the price we pay for wanting to be Jewish and still participate fully in American society. Now, here's some good news. We can't predict the future. That's the good news, everybody. We don't know. We had four, I said this at the annual meeting, we, had, we, we interviewed four student rabbi candidates for our position here next year. Each one of them, volu- they were wonderful. Each one of them volunteered to us in the conversation. When we talk, said, tell us about yourself. That each one of them had grown up in a house with one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish
3: parent. And
0: the Jewish community had accepted them. They'd been raised as a Jew. And now they're in rabbinical school. So it is not a foregone
6: conclusion. These are the facts.
0: What's the fact? The fact, the fact is fact I just... Is
6: over 55% intermarriage... Yeah, that's the fact. That's the fact.
0: That doesn't mean we're going to disappear.
6: But that's the fact.
0: Fine, that's the fact.
6: If you continue I, this within 200 years, certain Jewish elements... No, that's not the fact. I think so. You except think like so. The, I'm like saying. The very religious
0: thing. Uh, David, I, I happen to disagree because you can't predict the future, and neither can I. And if you said in 1897, some idiot named Herzl just said that in 50 years we're going to have a Jewish state, nobody believed it. If you said that after the, uh, uh, in 1964, when you're reading the headlines of Newsweek magazine, God is Dead, right. that the religious right would have made the resurgence, today, no one would have believed you. And so I say humbly that no, that I don't know, and I take great consolation from that. Uh, I don't know. I I cannot predict the future, and I think if you go back to previous prognostications, they were wrong too. So uh, that's what I have to say, David. The fact is that 55% are intermarried. The future is unknown. What
8: do you think about? anti-Muslim sentiment in regard to anti-Semitism?
0: Really complicated. <laughs> uh, uh, we had a Muslim speaker here on Saturday night, uh, uh, Dr. Reza Mansour, who is a... He's an immigrant. He's a cardiologist. He's a religious Muslim and he is a to- totally interested in promoting a version of Islam that works in a pluralistic society. It was really interesting. And um, uh, so, and we brought him in because I believe that a nation that doesn't demonize, that demonizes one part of the population is headed towards demonizing other parts of the population. And that's, you know, like the famous, um, uh, the famous saying by, um, uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, right. that's in our lobby. Right. First they came for the trade unionists, but I wasn't a trade unionist, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the communists, but I wasn't a communist, and so then they came for the and when they the Jews, and I didn't speak And then they came for me, and there was no one left for me to speak up. I think that lessons of history tell us that if another group is being targeted and demonized in our society, that it's in our self-interest to, uh, uh, to stand up against that. Because once again, what we're doing then is we are saying, in the public square, this is unacceptable. Not, oh, at least it's not happening to me, right? Because that is a recipe for disaster, in my opinion, or potential disaster. Uh, Rather, be brave, step into the public square, and say, in my country, we don't talk this way. Make believe you're the classroom teacher, wherever you are. I'm sorry. In my supermarket, we don't talk this way. I'm sorry. This is not acceptable you know, and, and just marginalize it. Don't make it acceptable, and make common cause with the many, many millions of people in our society who agree with us. Uh, I think if we're talking about how to combat anti-Semitism in this country, I think that's one of the most important strategies. So, um, uh, I guess that answers your question. Uh, that's how I see them related. I haven't thought too much about uh, why, about the the incredible rise of anti-Muslim sentiment in this country over the last thirty years. You know, as as, as terrorists replace um, Soviet Union and German uh, spies in our movies. You know, and as Arab faces sure. replace people from the Soviet Union. You know, uh, and so all of a sudden the new boogeyman is, you know, and of course the Islamic terrorists are are help are aren't aren't helping Muslims. Uh, at all, I mean, it's just like there are extremist Jews who are, uh, you know, just like there are, who is saying about uh, the, the visible, the, the incredibly powerful, visible Jews in the administration who are supporting reactionary policies. You know, I think reactionary policies are bad for the Jews because I think openness and tolerance and pluralism help a minority thrive, you know, uh, and not just us. Uh, yes, Jonathan.
1: I was wondering... Um, on your opinion, what would be the best suggestion or to, for example, reduce the amount of anticipation um have in schools because I just today I heard someone yelling. You're a senior, out. right? Yes. What did you hear? I heard someone saying you effing Jew. Mm. Really? Yes. It was right outside my classroom and I heard I was like, okay. But I'm wondering what can be done to help reduce that even those kind of comments coming out of someone.
0: It's really challenging. Again, because once you let the cat out of the bag, you know, and that's what's happening more and more now. I mean, I've, I've been a rabbi now for a long time and I've heard these stories. There's nothing new about this, right? Um, but if it gains any more social acceptability, it's bad. The, 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 um, the sentiments will always be sort of like bubbling around for some people. So when there was the most recent incident at Socrates, not most recent, I went to the Socrates school board meeting. Um, and uh, um, I didn't want to go to the meeting. I was exhausted. you know, But it's like, I guess I have to go to this meeting. And I went, and a number of other people were there, and the president of the board of uh, the school board was very respectful. And then the um, principal and the superintendent both contacted me afterwards. So I think we need to keep speaking up. Jonathan. Now, there's the other issue of what you do if you confront it immediately. What would be a way that you, if you were in the hall when that happened, what might you have said?
6: Hey, okay, man, that's not cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then what might they have done? Well, you could, you're, you're always risking getting punched in the face. You're always risking that. That's the risk of sticking your neck out, right? Um, uh, uh, this is, let's, let's face it. So, but yeah. So both interrupting it when you are able to, but also working with the school, school structure so that they understand it and know that we care and know that we're keeping our eye on them, uh, that we're waiting for them to do something. But it's a constant battle, Jonathan, in my opinion. Do you have any thoughts about that? What happened in the these? Oh, the garden variety. Oh, everybody, in addition to the right and the left, I wanted to talk about garden variety anti-Semitism. You know, throwing pennies at Jewish kids on, on, in mm-hmm. school yeah, and that. saying, that's, that's what yeah, yeah, all this, all this stereotypical stuff. You know, Jew as a verb is still in the dictionary. Um, it's like, it's, again, anti-Semitism is just there. And so what you want to do, in my opinion, is interrupt it and, not, and say that this is not okay. Uh, yes.
9: It's really scary to stand up. And I think talking together like this is very helpful. Because I can tell you, you are right. Doing it directly, I we had our kids had pennies thrown, and one of the fathers that lived in the community went over to the family, and I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen now? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it got much much better. He knocked. He had the conversation, and it was good. It was good.
0: He reached out to them as a fellow human being. And there are some people who will never be able to hear you, but most people will. Right. Which is the other thing we need to do, which is to remember that most people have good intentions. Roger. I'm trying to make
8: it not long. Um, there's some groups that insulate themselves very much. Yes. Uh, Jewish groups. And I think that that increases anti Semitism. And I understand where it comes from traumatized, wanting to keep their cultures. But without getting into specifics, I know very often non-Jews or non-members of our community especially are not treated as equals. And, and I know it affects many people, makes them feel more hostile towards Jews. And I think about it as Jews integrate more into American society. I think about Harry Truman's best friend and how uh, the vote in the United Nations would have been very different if it weren't for just an honest, upstanding guy who was uh, Businessman in Missouri and a friend of Harry Truman's hadn't, you know, just by integrating into society with non-Jewish people and leading upright lives. Mm-hmm. My son, I don't think he's been to services in God knows how many years, <coughs> but he identifies very strongly as Jewish, and by being you know, a volunteer and doing blue-collar stuff with the fire department and going to fires with everybody, I know he's a presence and it's affected people's views towards Jews, seeing that he's proudly Jewish despite. And I think that's a strong way to fight anti-Semitism is not to insulate, mm-hmm. but as we integrate more.
0: Nicely, nicely expressed. Mm-hmm. I, um, uh, this again reflects the tension mm-hmm. that Jews who choose to be fully integrated into American society deal with. Because you want to interact with everybody, just like you say, and retain your, your intact Jewish identity. It's a challenge. Um, and, uh, and I think it's worth mentioning the, the most insular ultra orthodox groups in this country um, because um, they have made the decision to put up the walls around themselves and the society they live in. But it means that many of those groups are not good citizens and are taking advantage of a system without. Giving back to it in the way that we under, that we understand civic responsibility is, is supposed to be, and they also happen to be because of their uh because of the way they dress and because of their appearance and because they're being completely visible as Jews, the most visible element of the Jewish community.
3: Yeah.
0: It's a problem. It's a problem. I have no control over them, and so I can have my critique. <coughs> and I can also wish it was different in terms of how they more or less abuse the system and make people mad at them, um, but uh, there's nothing I can do about it. So I, when we talk about how to combat anti-Semitism, all, all we got is ourselves. Did
6: It happened in Germany. The German Jews never thought this would happen to them. Today. A survey by Haaretz claimed that over 55% of the Jews think that a Holocaust can happen again. So claiming that open arms will be like you would. We fought in the German First World War. It'll never happen to us. My grandfather visited us in Israel in 1936. Mm. He went back. He came back in '38. We said, why are you going back? I fought in World War One. It's yeah. the Eastern Jews that will be persecuted. Right, just the Eastern so, Jews. So, yeah. So saying, claiming open arms will be part of them something, you can never take that for granted.
0: I don't take it for granted.
6: Yes, he said that the result we should be open, integrate, we should be part of them etc.
0: Okay, David, here we go again. Um <laughs> I didn't say that it couldn't happen here. I did not say that. Did I say that? No. Basically I did not say it couldn't happen here. I said at this, we need to use our discerning minds to assess levels of danger and react accordingly.
6: Which means?
0: Which means in this case, my assessment is that civil society in this country is still intact, that we have millions of people who would be on our side in the fight against intolerance, and that that is the strategy that I would choose at this point in American history. I'm not making... I'm saying if it changes, I'll change my strategy, David. But I'm saying at this point, I do, I, even though I'm perfectly aware of the parallels between Weimar Germany and the United States, I don't, I, my assessment is this is the strategy I'm choosing. I don't understand what you can take issue with in me describing that as this. You can say that's not. You can say I think your strategy is wrong, and you can say I would take a different strategy. But to make blanket statements about that, this is you know, it's like so. We can disagree, but I want us to have a rational conversation about it. Um, And my assessment looks at the historical differences between Weimar Germany. And the United States at this point. That doesn't mean that I'm not terrified by the deterioration of civil society in this country right now. But uh, when Anne talks about having her passport, one of the reasons I'm a giant supporter of Israel is because I am not. I don't know what's going to happen, and I I want to support Israel and make sure that I have a place I could go to if God forbid we came to that. But
6: take the example of Israel, which said in '48, "Don't mess with us," which means they fought back they were ready to be annihilated
0: i don't think you understand what i'm saying i am fighting back i'm fighting back by gathering the people in this country jews and non-jews who agree with me to marginalize the people who are promoting hate that is fighting back what are you talking about
6: you said fighting back getting the jews cavern i didn't say in in some kind of a caravan or in inside of a ring but you should also protect yourself on some story you have to make sure that telling the other side whoever it is don't mess with us
0: i thought i, I don't think I, we're disagreeing right. I think I
6: think my 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 theory is that I, we not this evening maybe another evening i think every jew should own a gun period no. no. it. oh so, so, so it's gun control but no, wait a second. So, David, a,
0: I don't disagree with you. It might be a very wise move. You're, you're, you're really you're pigeonholing me in ways that you don't no, understand. No, I,
6: I, 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 I'm not picking. I just think there is here. I have a whole fear of Judaism, which is not. It's
0: right, 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 right. So, you might be right. And I might, some years from now, decide that I have to train myself in firearms and get a gun. I'm not personally there yet. But I'm not saying no, David. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just telling you that I'm not there yet. And I hope I don't have to be. I'm taking different strategies. And I may be proven, sadly, wrong. And I hope, if I I recognize that my strategy has been a wrong strategy, that I will have the presence of mind and the humility to change course at that point. But my strategy now is to trust more in the American system not the German system right. that we aren't done yet with the American project that our nation may be able to overcome the, the current downward trends that are going on and so that's where I stand mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you're you're crazy or wrong or anything yeah. so but now it's 9:20 Ron you want to say yeah. something uh, yeah I, I think that there
8: will be a time in America where Minority groups, whether it's Jews or Muslims or gays or blacks or immigrants, um, where the the persecution will be stepped up against them, mm-hmm. and I think it's just it's incumbent on us not just to defend against that when it's Jews, um, it's incumbent upon us to to make to take that action, not because it's just in our self interest, but because that's what the Jewish thing to do is. Ah yes, what are our, our
0: ideals? ideals? one of the ways to combat this is to be clear about our jewish ideals what judaism teaches us one thing judaism teaches us is that we must survive but another thing that judaism teaches us is, if we survive what for mm-hmm. and so to be a jew in my opinion also means to stand for something mm-hmm. and not just for survival
8: so so in school it's not just when you hear effing jew it's when you hear effing whatever F, F, you have to yeah, intervene yeah. then mm-hmm. you know not just when it's us mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, I'm going to repeat that again. Um, that our primary, our primary need is to survive. Because we don't survive, we can't thrive. right? But if surviving is our only, then for sure our kids are going to leave. Right? If all we teach them is, you have to be a Jew, we have to survive. Yeah, well, Whoa, thanks then, a lot, I'll go find another game to play.
3: Yeah,
0: and Judaism stands for something. And uh, I I think that that is also something that can ennoble us and remind us of what we're doing here. So um, let's see. We've gone over time. Uh, Barbara, can you be concise?
10: I will try to. I have a couple of very quick comments and a question. Mm -hmm. One is one way of fighting anti-Semitism, I think, is as Roger was saying, is to be integrated in the community and have people to see that we're just like everybody else. But also when there are people who identify as Jews, whether they're Orthodox or Hasidic, not to be embarrassed by that, not to feel that they don't have a right to do that. Every group has a minority has a right to express their ethnicity without being um, looked on as being anathema to something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and including the way we see orthodox and Hasidic Jews. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I wanted to mention. That's one way we can combat anti-Semitism. I think I want to thank you for this meeting tonight. And certainly the first step to take is to, as you were saying, examine our own own souls and our own interactions with um, hate and prejudice. And but I'm wondering, I don't think it's enough. And wondering, as a Jewish community, are we going to have any kind of organized response or ongoing forums? this? Well,
0: well, we have national Jewish organizations that are very worthy of our support. The Anti-Defamation League is a great organization. I give them money. Um, and the, yet, yeah, I'm, I'm busy running a synagogue, so I want to send my money to organizations that are devoted to battling... Defina- defamation, anti-Semitism, prejudice. Um, and so that's what I recommend. Uh, um, uh, they, they have an office in Albany that is devoted to, you know, that's who you call. That's why I give them money, because they're organized to stand up against... And they uh, know
3: how to do it.
0: Hmm? And, they, and they know how to do it. They have a big track record. So, so that's my opinion about that. Federation, uh,
3: Jewish Federation. The
0: Jewish Federation is also the umbrella organization of the various Jewish communities, and they are not affiliated with any denomination. They are the—they are not religious organizations. They are a Jewish communal organizations. So, I—I I, I would say if you care about this, get involved not just in your synagogue, but in the uh, Jewish organizations that are working on these issues. Um, this is not our only Jewish option, by any means.
10: But have an orientation towards Judaism and the way—I'll um, just leave it at that—that that may not exist outside of the synagogue. Um,
0: so come here for your inspiration, and then go treat people that way in the other places and spread, spread, spread the good news. You know, that's how I feel about it.
3: Um, Rabbi Jonathan. Yeah. Did, did you them? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I'm just wondering if, if it was such an. For me, such an
7: incredible session. And,
3: mm-hmm.
7: and I would love to be able, I mean, just this talk tonight. Well, this get, is recorded. You know, I wanted
0: to say something. I'm thinking about what David said. And I want to agree with David in regards to this. I think we have to be brave and get in people's faces. You know, I'm not talking about liberal wishy washiness That's not what I mean at all. You've got me completely wrong, if that's what you think. I'm talking about how we do it, but it requires us to be sticking our necks out. And it requires us to be being proud of our Jewishness. And it requires all of that of us. Hiding is another option, but I'm not interested. Uh, Blaze, did you want to say something? I
9: want to say two
0: things about what we can do here. This is the last comment. For... um, Standing up
9: for not only ourselves but for others, there's this task force to end the new Jim Crow, which actually started here and now is sort of community wide Jewish action group. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that for this young man here and for school board Jonathan. And all over for Jonathan. There are um, organizations that actually train students in how to be allies, and vi- they do a really, really good job. Um, so that's something to look into. That's that's the, right. coalition building the National
0: Institute, Coalition Building Institute, 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 run by an uh, old teacher of mine. And they have a
9: chapter in Albany, and they come and they do trainings. I don't know how, you know. So, and there's other ones, too. Mm-hmm. So those things are very good for students because it, it teaches them... Um, are the allies and how to stand up for themselves and Thank how you. to stand up for others. Thank
0: you. So my final comment is, I'm sitting up in front and I'm, I'm telling you all my thoughts and good ideas. I put a lot of thought into it, but I want to humbly say it's the best I can do right now and I hope it's helpful to all of us that we had this discourse tonight. I, I certainly don't have all the answers,
3: but uh, I'm glad you could talk about it.